0: A reading from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from,
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you desire to speak to us, not just to our minds, Lord, but to maybe, Lord, if you desire do something in our hearts so that we would leave here changed for the better. And so I pray now that you would do a work through your word in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys are doing a sermon series as well as reading through the Gospel of John. And you started this in the last few weeks. um, And this week we're in John chapter 2. Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cana. Now, the Gospel of John is not fiction. It's not a fictional story, although it is a great story. And there's at least two reasons it's not fiction. The first is, the events it tells are historical events. They're eyewitness accounts. These are historical things that happened in the area of Palestine in the first century. The second reason it's not fiction, and I find this reason very helpful, is that John, at the end of the book gives us a very specific reason for why he wrote it. You see, with a merely fictional story, often the author doesn't give you a definite reason for why they're writing. They kind of let you draw the conclusion. You you read a good story, you think about it, and you, you draw the conclusion you want to draw. John's gospel isn't like that. He makes a claim on the reader at the very end that is to control how you read it the whole way through. Here's what he says. In chapter 20, near the very end, in verses 30 and 31, he writes the following. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did a lot of things that John did not write down. But he did certain things that John has written down. And his stated purpose is so that those who read these things will believe in Jesus and have life. So anytime you read a sentence in John's gospel, you need to understand that the purpose for that sentence is so that you might believe in Jesus and have life. So that's the goal when we go into John. Faith in Christ and life in him. Now there's one other word in this sentence that's very important for us to notice. John uses the word signs. He says, Jesus did many signs. And these signs are written so that you may believe. In other words, we have to go into John understanding the significance of signs. You see, Jesus does a lot of miracles in John's gospel, but they're never referred to as miracles. They're referred to as signs. And the event we're going to look at today is the very first sign that Jesus does. So we need to understand why John uses this word sign, because the signs Jesus do are the key ways that we see him, believe in him and have life in him. So why is it? Why is it that John calls Jesus's miracles signs? The other gospel writers don't do this. Why does he call them signs? He does this because Jesus's miracles are never the point in and of themselves. The miracles are a sign that point past themselves to something else. It's like the sign outside those door for Donuts. There's a sign somewhere out there that says donuts and coffee. The sign is not the point. The sign has an arrow to point you past it towards the actual donuts and coffee. So Jesus's miracles are a sign that is meant to point to something deeper. And what it points to is something deeper about Jesus. So here's how the gospel works as you read it. Jesus does a sign, a miracle. And you're meant to see what happens on the surface and then look past it as though it took on arrows and pointed you to a deeper reality about Jesus. So our aim this morning is very simple. It's very straightforward. We're going to look at Jesus' his inaugural sign, his very first sign. And we're going to ask how it points us to a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. The wedding at Cana is Jesus's first sign. Last week when Johnny kicked your time in John off, he looked at Jesus's first words. Does anybody remember what Jesus's first words were? Johnny? <laughs> you don't count. What, what are you seeking? I heard that. Exactly. So in John chapter one, the first words Jesus is utter, Jesus utters are, what are you seeking? He collects some of his disciples after this scene. And then we move into John chapter 2. And we arrive at this wedding in Cana. And here is where Jesus' very first sign, his first miracle takes place. And we need to pay close attention to it. Because if you were beginning a campaign. And this was your inaugural moment you would be very meticulous about what it was. So what we see happening here in Cana is the kicking off of Jesus' campaign, of his ministry. It is his inaugural sign. I want to summarize it for us, recap the events briefly, and then ask how it points us past itself to Jesus. So what's happening in Cana of Galilee? Galilee. Well, Cana was a small town just over the mountains, a short few miles from Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. And we learn right away that what's going on in Cana is a wedding. And the mother of Jesus was there, as was Jesus and his disciples. So we can infer from this that whoever was getting married, probably probably just some teenagers, some young people, they were friends of Jesus. They were close enough in relationship that not only Jesus' mother, but Jesus himself and his friends and his disciples were invited. So Jesus knew these people. So he arrives at this wedding. Now, a wedding in this context was a very big deal. This ceremony often could last an entire week. And the bridegroom and the bride would be paraded in a procession through town to the bridegroom's house and all would gather and there'd be a great feast. So Jesus arrives with many, many other guests from the village and surrounding villages for this great feast. That's the setting. Now something goes very wrong right away. They run out of wine. Now this was a big social problem for the bridegroom and the bride. Hospitality is huge in this setting. And it's a shame culture. So imagine this. Here's the bridegroom. Stepping into manhood, as it were, hosting the village at his home while he takes his bride. How would it look if he miscalculated and didn't provide enough wine? It's a moment filled with tension. And so, what happens in this scene is that Jesus' mother finds out there's no wine. She goes to Jesus and she makes him aware of it. She says they've run out of wine. And the following kind of cryptic message comes out of Jesus's mouth. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus's mother turns to the servants and says, do whatever Jesus tells you. And as the scene unfolds, Jesus points to six huge stone water jars together holding 120 gallons of water. And he tells the servants to fill them with water and draw some and take it to the headmaster, the MC of the wedding. And what happens after this is the MC discovers that this is wine coming out of these stone jars. He doesn't know where it came from. But it's not just wine in a great quantity. It's of the best quality. And he goes to the bridegroom and he says, I don't understand this. Everyone else serves the best wine first but you have kept the best until now. And then John says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did it Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see the logic working? He did a sign. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what we want to do is we want to look at this sign and simply ask the question, how does it point to Jesus? How does it reveal his glory? And there's many ways it does so, but I just want to focus on three aspects of this sign that point past the sign itself to Jesus' glory. I want to look at the setting, the timing, and the wine. So first, we need to notice the setting. Jesus is choosing to do his first sign at a wedding. There are a lot of places in society he could have gone to turn water into wine. He could have done it at any kitchen table. He could have done it at any river. He could have done it when it was raining out. Why did he choose a wedding? This is very significant. All throughout the Bible, weddings and marriages are very significant. The Bible opens with a wedding... Adam and Eve are created and they're immediately brought together as one flesh. The Bible closes with the wedding. In the book of Revelation, in the last chapter, this very same author, John, is given a vision by an angel. And the angel says, behold the bride of the Lamb." Who is being brought into this marriage union with the Lamb, who is Jesus? So we have marriages bookending the Bible. And here, Jesus' first miracle is a wedding, it's a marriage. What's going on here? In the Old Testament, often, God's relationship with his people is likened to a covenant or a marriage a man and a woman yoking themselves together for life, for better or for worse. And in the book of Isaiah, when the prophets writing about wayward Israel and how God feels about his people, the writer says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. So there's this idea that God's relationship with his people is like a husband's relationship with a wife. It's like a marriage. And when we get to the New Testament, In this very gospel, one chapter later, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as what? A bridegroom. He looks at him and says he's the bridegroom. So this is very, very significant. What is going on here? I think the reason Jesus chooses a wedding for this sign is because he wants it to point or to reveal something about his heart. He did not come as a grim taskmaster who was sick and tired of his people's inability to obey him. He came with the jealousy of a bridegroom because he desires his bride. One of the greatest privileges of being a minister is officiating weddings. And I was officiating a wedding in Baltimore, Maryland, in the fall, and something struck me like lightning at the beginning of the service. You know how weddings begin. The, there are only two men at the front of the church to start, the, the minister and the groom, right? And slowly the wedding party comes in down the center aisle, the groomsmen escorting in the bridesmaids, and slowly they take their places to the left and the right of the minister and the groom. And then there's a wall. In the music, right? And everybody's in their place. Everyone gets quiet and kind of swivels in their seat. And suddenly the organ comes in deeper and louder than it has been in the service. And it's the cue for the back doors of the church to swing open. And in walks in, flooded with light, the bride. And everyone, as though it would be immoral to stay seated stands to their feet, swivels around, and beholds the bride. And she begins to walk down the aisle. It's overwhelming. Here's what's unique about being a minister at this point. I have a view that no one else does. You see, when I look at the bride, who do I have in my line of sight? The groom. No one else can look at the bride and look at the groom at the same time. Not in that moment. So as I watch the bride coming towards me, I'm watching the groom watching his bride. And inevitably, the man's jaw's quivering. He, he has not seen her in her wedding dress yet. He has longed for this day. She is the main point. And he is utterly undone. And what hit me like lightning at this wedding in Baltimore, in this great Catholic church, this beautiful sanctuary, was that this is meant as a sign to point me towards how Jesus Christ feels about his church. If you wanted to know how the Messiah felt about the people of God when he came, you would have to look into the eyes of that groom as his bride walked through the door. This is not a grim taskmaster who has shown up to remind us that we're wrong. It is the bridegroom who is jealous for the bride's joy. And so Jesus starts his ministry off by sounding this note. I am here for your joy. So here is the first signpost in this miracle. The true bridegroom has arrived and he is jealous for your joy. That is very good news. The second aspect of this sign that we need to notice, and this really spoke to me this week, is the timing. The the timing is a big issue here. And towards the end of the account, we read that the headmaster of the ceremony as he finds out that all this great wine has been made, looks to the bridegroom and says, everyone, literally all men, keep the good wine until later for when the people have already drunk freely, or excuse me, they they serve the good wine first. And then when everyone is drunk freely, they bring out the dregs, the less expensive wine." but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus could have done this miracle at any point during the ceremony. Why is it significant that he does it at a surprising juncture? What does the timing tell us? Here's what I think the timing tells us. And this is very important. Jesus saves the best for last. Or another way to put it would be this. God Keeps getting better. Some of you in this room maybe have not met Jesus Christ yet. For you, the best is yet to come. Some of you have followed Jesus Christ for 20 years. For you, the best is yet to come. If you have had ecstatic experiences, if you have dreamed dreams and had visions, and beheld the glory of God. I can say this to you: the best is still to come. And this guards against a great social problem that we have. The universal angst of aging. We don't like aging, do we? We fight against it. We we, we, we picture life as these seasons that are going to be the best. High school or co- college will be the best years of your life or or early marriage or when you have your kids when your kids are little that's the best or or finally when you get your kids out of the house and you're an empty nester and you're finally established in your career those are the sweet years and you climb that mountain and what's terrifying is when you realize you've hit the zenith and all that's left is downhill or even more frightening is to think you had a shot at climbing that mountain and you veered off the path and you blew it. Do you ever say, I'll never get that opportunity back. I'll never get those years back. My high school wasn't a great experience. My, my college wasn't what I wanted it to be. My early marriage, I, I, my, my, my raising of my kids hasn't been as wonderful as it was supposed to be. I keep missing out. If your life is wrapped up with God, you will have many occasions when you will have to pause and look up to him and say, you have kept the best wine until now. God comes in and he redeems things, not just to fix what was past, but to in a super abundant way lavish blessings on us that exceed our expectations. And often in this life, we have these moments. And all of us in the life to come will look at our Lord and we will have to say, you save the best wine for now. The best is yet to come for all of us. We have not reached the top of the mountain." This is very, very good news. Jesus is the only being in the universe who keeps getting better. Which is why our relationship with him is incredibly intoxicating. That's the second aspect of the sign that points us to Jesus, the timing. And finally, we can't forget the wine. He didn't make grape juice. He didn't make milk. Water would have done it. Would have kept the people hydrated. They could have danced a little longer. As Johnny Cash says, he turned the water into wine. Why? Why wine? Why the quantity of it? 120 gallons. Why the quality of it? The very best. Like a wedding, a wine is very symbolic throughout the Bible. Wine is a symbol for richness for blessing, for the good things in life. And wine throughout the Old Testament becomes an image or a picture of the new creation. What life will be like when God finally brings His new heaven and new earth to bear. Wine has this powerful imagery of joy to come. So Jesus turns water into wine to underscore this point that we've already mentioned. He came for our joy. He wants wine to be the very center controlling image of his mission. He came for our joy. Often, Christianity and Jesus are seen as some grim thing that takes the fun out of life. Jesus is seen as a grim taskmaster in obedience to whom life becomes gloomy when I was younger, I really believed this. In uh, middle school and high school, as my parents dragged me into church, what I seemed to be hearing was, you can't do this, don't do that. And it was always around the things that I wanted to do. I thought, man, this, this just can't be good news. I think Jesus came to turn wine into water. That was not the case with our Lord Jesus understands a thing or two about joy. And let me just highlight a few ways that Jesus brings joy or wine into our lives. The first significant aspect here in this scene is that Jesus is bringing joy to a very common everyday event, a wedding. He is, in this sense, putting his hands upon the earthly blessings of this life and anointing them. Like the marriage between two no-name teenagers in Cana of Galilee. Jesus is putting the blessing of joy on family vacations. On date night. On the prom. On high school basketball. On doing artwork. On a work party to celebrate the birthday of your boss. He's putting his blessing on honeymoons. Taking walks with your golden retriever. Baby's baptisms. A walk alone on a cool winter night when the moon's out. Jesus is saying this, the richness of this life, I affirm, drink deeply. I love these things. I love the wedding between two teenagers in Cana of Galilee. And I would keep the festivities going. He is affirming our earthly joy. The second way he brings joy has to do with the contraptions he makes wine in. Did anybody catch what they were? Stone jars of purification. Why is that significant? Jesus is taking these stone jars of purification, and in the Jewish religion, with their rituals, they would use water from these jars to purify themselves from sin. Jesus is saying, I am the true purifier. Purifier. And anybody who knows anything about joy knows the greatest enemy to joy is feeling unclean. Right? It's feeling sinful. It's realizing that as you'd want to take up this joyful moment with family and friends, you have this sick secret, this thing you did, this thought you think in your mind that makes you unclean. Joy requires utter vulnerability, being known, totally being who you are and being cleansed. Jesus is saying, I am the one who truly purifies. And he does so several chapters later when he purifies us with the wine and blood from his own side on the cross. Interestingly, and I'm going to put this in as a footnote. There's only one other scene in the Gospel of John that involves Jesus' mother. It's the scene in John 19 when Jesus is hanging on the cross and his mother and his disciple are in front of him. Blood is pouring out of Jesus' side and the issue of wine comes up again. One of the soldiers takes a sponge and John is very careful with his language. He says a sponge of sour wine and Jesus drinks it. Jesus drinks the sour wine so that he can pour out to us the good wine, the wine of his purifying blood, have taking, taken his sin, our sin on his shoulders and cleansed us from it. Jesus brings joy because Jesus can make you and me clean and wipe away our shame. And the final uniqueness of this joy is that it's deeper than sorrow. This is a joy that if you've experienced it, you know, grows up out of and is stronger and greater than life's sorrows. It's the joy of knowing that the all-powerful bridegroom is jealous for your well-being and your joy and is working towards that end and that you can trust him. He turned the water into wine because he wanted us to know he has come for our joy. Let me close with one of my favorite scenes from literature that involves this very story. In The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, um, some of you may have read that or heard about it, there is an incredible scene when the central character, Eliosha, the youngest brother, Interacts with this gospel message, the wedding at Cana. Now, Eliosha is studying to be a monk. He's in his early 20s and he's in this Russian monastery. And he's being mentored by this older man named Father Zosima. And Father Zosima is an incredibly godly man filled with joy. One of these men who's so simple and so wise and so filled with joy. He draws people from all over Russia to him. And in a very tender scene, Father Zosima has become sick, he's old, and he dies. And Alyosha has simultaneously been introduced into incredible dysfunction in his family that will require him to leave the monastery and go deal with it head on. And he knows it will dynamically change his life, and he's afraid. And here he is losing his great mentor. And he's in the room as the Russian monks do the ceremony at burial. And his beloved mentor, Father Zazima, is laid in his coffin. And the priest begins to read from the wedding at Cana. And Eliosha listens. And he starts to take in this story. And as though there's streams of light coming out of heaven, the gospel, Christianity, the call on his life and the courage he needs all come together. And here's what he says. Ah, yes, I've been missing it. I love this passage. It's Cana of Galilee, the first of Jesus's miracles. Ah, that miracle. Ah, that lovely miracle. Not grief, but men's joy Christ visited when he worked his first miracle. He helped men's joy. He who loves men loves their joy. Fathers Ozima used to say this all the time. And here is the lesson of the first sign at the wedding of Cana. He who loves men He who loves you Loves your joy And the bridegroom has come Because he is jealous He is jealous For your joy Amen
2: Oh the deep, deep Love of Jesus, past unmeasured boundless free, rolling as the mighty ocean in its fullest.